All right, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. If you want to come on in. Anyone watch the game last night? Man, there was like over 20 lead changes, I think. That was, that's right, that's right. If you didn't know, uh, Duke and UNC played each other for the first time in the postseason ever, and then it was, you know, in the final four of all things, and Coach K's last game, now was his last game, so that was a great game. Um, Yeah. What was that? (laughs) All right, all right, let's let's talk about things that matter a little more and are more lasting. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this chance to gather uh, together again and uh, open your word and um, study it together. I pray that you would give us humility, and I pray that you'd give us insight and wisdom. Teach us, Lord, this morning. Um, Would you use my words and my teaching to make all of us more like your son? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last time we ended with... um, the end of chapter five, I guess the end of chapter four into chapter five, we saw that they had come together finally for marriage and had consummated their marriage. Um, they, uh, after, you know, so much longing between them in the earlier chapters, but still waiting, um, they finally come together and uh, it ends in the beginning, this last section ended with it saying, eat friends, drink and be drunk with love. This is just kind of, we said, uh, kind of the curtains are closing and they're going to be with each other. Each other. Um, today, we soon discover um, that after chapter 5, verse 1, uh, that their marriage wasn't exactly happily ever after. Go figure. Uh, there's been some struggle between them. Um, but we also see in this passage that ways that they fight to kind of come back together. And so the scene opens with the bride on her bed, sort of half asleep, which explains the dreamlike quality of this section. Um, You know, most believe this is probably more of a a dream than anything. Um, And also just a good reminder that we said at the beginning that Song of Songs is poetry. Um, It's not an exact recounting of historical events. Um, It's very realistic, but it's also metaphorical. So let's remember that as we go through this section. So if, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Song of Songs uh, 5, um, I'll also have it up on the screen. So I'm going to read this next section <clears throat> in chapter 2. And this is the woman talking. And if, and if any of you have noticed, if you've been in here all semester so far, you notice that uh, the woman gets a, more of a prominent role in Song of Songs. She, she speaks much more. And um, this was sort of countercultural for that day. In, in, in that day, and often throughout history, um, you know, sex has been sort of this male-dominated sphere. Um, and, and, and I love how in the Bible here, the, the, the place in the Bible that talks about sex the most, here we see the woman uh, really um, engaging in this, and, and more even description of the woman's uh, point of view and side of it than even the man's, which I think is really neat. So she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. So she's half asleep. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me. 
So this is the quote now of, of her beloved. Open to me. So he's wanting to come in. Earlier, a couple, couple chapters ago, if you remember, he was, um, he was asking her to come out. They weren't married yet. So when he came to her house, he's asking her to come out. Now he's asking to come in, which is kind of a sign that they're married now. Um, and it's pretty clear in this moment that he's wanting to be intimate with her. And he says, my sister and my love. And so you see this relational um, connection. You see this relational language and, and this tenderness. And then he says, my dove, my perfect one. And so then he gets more into the physical side of his attraction to her. And notice he doesn't use the word bride here. He had used the word bride several times in chapter 4. Um, and one commentator noted that you know, the, word, the word bride is a legal term that would have, would have given the connotation of a demand, that he's demanding her um, to have sex with her. Um, but, but that's not what he's doing here. Um, he, that's, that was very countercultural for that day. Um, it was normal for, for men to kind of demand this of their wives. And so he says, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. It probably means that he's, you know, aroused in some way and wants to be intimate with her. Uh, verse 3, I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? This is her now talking. The quote has ended. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? So what's she saying there? She's all ready for bed. She doesn't really want to have to go through that routine again. It's basically her turning him down. Uh, verse 4, my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So basically she has now had a change of heart. Through his pursuit of her, we see um, she has now you know, become more open to, to him um, pursuing her and them being intimate. But somehow there was just a delay in her response. And so it continues in verse 6. I opened to my beloved. So now she comes to the door and opens the door. But my beloved had turned and gone. My soul had failed when he spoke. I sought him but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. And so what has happened? Uh, through kind of her, her pausing, her kind of her delay to um, you know, be open to being physical with him, he maybe gets frustrated, and maybe this is him being passive-aggressive and saying, I'll show her, but he, he's gone when she opens the door. He's left, and now she's saddened. Uh, does this sound familiar at all to anyone who's married? He, he has his expectations, she has hers, uh, and when their expectations are not in sync, someone gets angry. But notice there's also a lesson here that she pursues him, as we'll see the rest of the chapter. She pursues him. She stays in the ring. Uh, she could have just pushed away herself but she pursues and wants to um, kind of come back together. And why? It's because they've made a covenant with each other. Um, so it continues in verse 7. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Okay, what is going on here? Uh, if you remember a couple chapters ago, she had been out looking for him at a different time. The watchmen, she interacted with the watchmen, and they were very helpful to her. Here we see they um, beat her up, basically. I, again, want to remind you that this was a dream. This was a dream she had, and so uh, most commentators believe right here this is sort of a metaphor. This is symbolic for the frustrations uh, of this situation for her. This is a frustrating situation, um, and this kind of is a metaphor for that. Um, and we see that she's, her pursuit of him in this moment is at cost to her in some way. 
Um, and that's a great, you know, metaphor for our relationship with Christ, that his pursuit of us was at much cost to him. Um, from heaven he came and sought her. So verse 8, I adjure you, now she talks to the daughters of Jerusalem again, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Um, you know, earlier they had learned from her to not stir up love too soon um, until it awakens. Now they learn from her that um, even if you don't stir up love too soon and, and you, you know, are able, God blesses you with marriage, it doesn't mean that life is now perfect, that um, marriage is hard. And so the others respond, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Um, some believe they're asking her here, is he worth it? Um, he's just walked out on you. Um, is he worth you pursuing him like this? And so she wastes no time in answering them. And there's sort of a lesson in kind of what we see in her response where she starts to praise him and starts to um, recount and rehearse um, all how much she loves him. And um, I think it's a good lesson for, for any couple or, or any relationship when, it's, when it goes sideways to, to be able to remind yourself and rehearse things that, that you love about the person and, and that draw you to them. So she replies, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. We don't really use the word ruddy anymore, I don't think. I never have heard that word much, but it just means handsome. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished from among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks, probably referring to a beard that he probably had. <clears throat> His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. The last part there is just showing her wanting to kiss him. Um, and she, if you notice, if you remember, she's using somewhat similar language to describe him as she had, uh, as he had used to describe her. And you just, it's it's neat to see couples when they start using similar language um, to talk about each other. Um, it just can show some of the the ways that they're becoming more united. Um, Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. I love that word friend there. It shows that this is more than just physical. This is relational. O daughters of Jerusalem. So that's her response. And so they then uh, respond back. Where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she replies, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. There's actually an interesting twist here in the kind of the progression of this moment. Um, it turns out that she knew, again, this is a dream. It turns out she knew where he was the whole time. Uh, commentators point out that this, this garden that is, it's referring to is not a geographical location. It's a person. Who is it? It's her. Earlier, multiple times, he had referred to her as a garden. And so, it's in this dreamlike way, he's all of a sudden there. He's all of a sudden back with her. And I think maybe this is a way of, of seeing that, you know, 
however this dream was, was coming about, there was this confidence in her. Despite their, their challenges, there was this confidence that they would come back together, that they would work through it. Um, they are covenanted together, and they would work through it. And so it, it, it finishes, this portion finishes, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies, <clears throat> which is you know, a metaphor for them being intimate with each other. So we see uh, at the beginning of this passage, they had used sex to get at each other, and now they use sex in its proper way as an expression of love um, between each other. But that never happens to couples anymore, does it? Um, this, this can be um, a point in a marriage that can be a, um, a, a tension area. And so I want to sort of use this, this section to talk about marital struggles over sex. I think this is an important topic to talk about. Um, and, you know, we obviously see it very clearly in, in this section of Song of Songs. Um, and so I want to, you know, the next two weeks really we'll talk about marital sex. And, and next week we'll be more looking at it from a more positive angle on kind of all God has designed it to be. I kind of want to summarize a lot of what we've said so far next time. Um, this week I'm going to talk about particular ways that it can be a cause of tension between a couple. In fact, I think for some it can be the number one cause of tension, just disagreements in this area and tension that they have. <clears throat> and it can be kind of hard to parachute just right into this aspect of marriage without talking about marriage as a whole. Um, before talking about you know, body oneness in a, between a couple, you need to talk about soul oneness. Um, I'm having a, a depth of relationship but before you talk about soul oneness, you need to talk about spirit oneness. You know, there's just a spiritual connection between a couple. And so the, the body oneness is a picture of those things. Um, and so, but, you know, we're in a class talking about sex, and um, it, it comes up in different ways in this section. And so I'm going to kind of just zero in on this, this part of, of marriage, even though there's so much that we would want to say about marriage. Um, to give more context. Uh, this can be a hard topic for some. Maybe this is a topic that um, hits particularly home for you and your marriage. Uh, maybe there's struggles in your marriage, and, and this is part of them. Um, maybe you're here, and this isn't necessarily a season um, that your marriage is in for medical or other reasons. Um, that, that, you know, any kind of frequency of intimacy with each other is just not the season you're in. Maybe you're here and you desire to be married. And so talking about this can be hard of just making you long to have a spouse to be with. Or maybe you're here and you're a widow or a widower um, and, and you know, you're not married anymore and, and this is something that was um, in the past for you. So, so why is this relevant for all of us to talk about, even though it may not immediately apply to all of us um, who are here? I just want to share a couple things, and I'm drawing a lot from how Dan kind of introduced his sermon on marriage a couple weeks ago, where he kind of started out saying, hey, we as a whole church need to talk about marriage, even though not everyone is married. You know, remember, whenever we talk about marriage, we can learn things about our relationship with Christ. Um, our relationship with Christ is, is said in, the, in Ephesians 5 and many other places to be like a marriage. And so what we learn about the, the relationship between a husband and wife can teach us things about how we relate to Christ and how he relates to us, which applies to all of us. For those longing to be married, hopefully this um, you know, better equips you with healthier expectations for marriage and how to love your future spouse well. 
Um, and those here who've maybe lost their spouse or, or you know, don't have the prospect of marriage, you still have people in your lives who are married, and maybe God could use some things that um, is, are said today, um, and, and through you could use some of these things to bless someone in your life. All right, so uh, I want to talk about marital conflict over sex, and I think the best place to go is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Um, just a little context to this passage. Um, Paul had just finished in chapter 6 dealing with one extreme in Corinth of ways they were struggling with um, sexuality, and that was sexual immorality. Um, chapter 6 is you know, a famous passage on fleeing from sexual immorality. Um, and, and Corinth, you've probably heard many times, it was a very promiscuous culture. Um, and so Paul had to equip the church, especially in Corinth, on how to deal with that in a faithful way. However, there were some in Corinth who um, kind of went to the opposite extreme because of just how sexually immoral the Corinth culture was. They decided that they just want to avoid sex altogether. And even there were some marriages, it appears, where they just said, I think that we should just not even, you know, engage in sex. We should just flee it all together. They took the, the admonition to flee sexual morality to as we need to flee sexuality entirely. But that's not what Paul said. And so in chapter 7 now, he's dealing with that extreme. And he's essentially saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, and is going to still um, elevate sexuality in the way God has designed it uh, to be a beautiful thing. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 7. I have it up on the screen, obviously. If you want to read along. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, so he's quoting them there. This is not what Paul is teaching. Um, not to be afraid, but this is, this is what some of them were um, believing. And so he's addressing it. So verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Just a brief aside on, on the phrasing there. Um, this is a great passage that um, is kind of a counterpoint to, to anyone who would argue for poly polygamy. Um, we see here clearly that the, the, the ideal and the design for God is for a one-man, one-woman marriage. Uh, verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. I want you guys to understand that that was a massively countercultural thing for Paul to say. This, this um, took that culture um, completely off guard for Paul to say this. this. This was not at all what was practiced in that day um, for the husband to have this duty to give to his wife her conjugal rights. And he kind of says it in a different way a little bit later. Um, and likewise, the end of verse 3, the wife to her husband. Okay, so that, that would have come across very easily to, to many in that day. Of course, the wife has to give her rights to the husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Again, people in that day would have been, that would have been like, well, duh, Paul, you didn't have to say that. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Again, massively countercultural thing that the Bible teaches here um, in that day and even you know, throughout history that this has been um, a struggle in humanity. 
Um, and so he, he, he finishes verse 4 and now verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And historians believe that this is one of the most revolutionary, shocking things that the Bible teaches on sex for that day. And it's really important to understand all that is going on in this passage, because many have misused this passage in their marriages. Um, You've maybe heard of this uh, podcast series on the Mars Hill Church in Seattle. There's an episode in there where you you learn of ways that there was kind of this culture that was developed in that church um, where the kind of the wives were encouraged to just please their husbands and to um, kind of, you know, give whatever their husbands wanted. Um, and, that, you know, there, sadly, there's, there's been ways that this passage has been misused like that. Um, I knew someone who was a believer who used this passage to argue that he expected sex every day from his wife. Um, and so I think it's important for us to really, uh, you know, heed the, the call of this passage in a way that, that's taking it for exactly what it means and to understand this passage. I think someone who's really helped me um, understand this passage is John Piper. Um, I wanted to read kind of an extended commentary that he gives on it. Um, John Piper, he, he argues that the, the counsel that Paul gives in this passage is paradoxical counsel. Um, and he says he thinks that Paul knows it. He knows that it's paradoxical. Let me explain. Um, it does not give either spouse the right to demand certain sexual acts from the other that he or she does not want to give. It's more complex than that. And so we need to follow his thought here. What is um, paradoxical um, and delicate about this text is that it logically doesn't work. What it does is call the couple to a profound effort to please the other without settling who will wind up getting the most pleasure especially because each person will get pleasure in not asking the other to do what the other finds unpleasurable. And why is that? Um, he'll, he'll kind of talk about that later, but it's better to give than to receive. I mean, think about how much joy, especially, you know, as a child, the joy of Christmas is always about what you're going to get at Christmas. I think into adulthood, more joy, I think, many adults find in, in the excitement of giving a good gift maybe to a child or giving a good gift to someone. And so I think John Piper is trying to talk about the, the joy and pleasure that can be had even in the intimate relationship of a man and woman of, you know, even more pleasure to be had in, in pleasing them. Um, so he says, here's what I mean why it logically doesn't work. If her body is his and his body is hers, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, and each has authority over the other's body, then he has the authority to ask her to do something he would find pleasurable, and she has the authority over his body to ask that he increase her pleasure by not asking that, she, that he do that. And so it leads to stalemate. He said, this is real life. I have dealt with it in my own marriage, and I have seen it in many couples. Logically, the text leads to stalemate, and I think Paul knew it. He was leading them... Um, beyond logic in this matter. He said it's similar to Romans 12, where Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. I will try to show honor to you, you will try to honor me, and who will have the greater joy of honoring the other more? 
It's a mysterious dance of love in the Christian community as we lay down our rights and demands and seek to outdo one another, not in what we can get, but what we can give. So he continues, similarly in marriage, we are seeking mainly to please the other. She wants to please him and so is prone to give what he desires. He wants to please her and so is prone not to demand what she finds unpleasant to give and vice versa. So he says there's one way that the paradox is broken. The leadership of the husband is defined by Paul not mainly as demanding his rights, but as laying down his life for the good of his wife, Ephesians 5. Therefore, the predominant resolution of the sexual paradox is that the husband gently and tenderly takes the lead in seeking to maximize his wife's pleasure, taking her longings deeply into account rather than pressuring her to adopt to his. The practical application of 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 is not resolved by logic or taking turns, or male dominance, or female submission, it is resolved in the mystery of love that discovers even here, when our physical pleasure is more prominent than anywhere else, Acts 20, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a holy and humble self-sacrificing competition to make the other maximally glad. Uh, It it reminds me of um, Ephesians 5 where Paul says, he who um, loves his wife loves his own body. There may be in there kind of this sense of, you know, the more that you put your, your spouse first, the more, the better it's going to be for you in whatever way that might be. So he says, the logical stalemate is broken by the miracle of grace. With God, all things are possible. So, you know, going back to 1 Corinthians 7, um, verses 1 through 5, this is not all that the Bible teaches on sex, but... Um, I think in 1 Corinthians 7, there's at least three things we learn. That uh, marital sex should be generous. should be, you know, thinking about the other. It should be mutual. <clears throat> Just this, there's this spirit of mutuality throughout the whole text in, in um, 7 verses 1 through 5. Every verse, you see it. And then that it should be frequent. And so John Piper's commentary that I just read really speaks to the, the generosity and the mutuality that is described there. So I wanted to then spend a little time talking about the the aspect of frequency. Um, And we see that in uh, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, uh, verse 5, where it says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Notice it says, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, the, the language there for don't deprive, that word in Greek can also mean um, defraud. Uh, most English translations use the word deprive there. Don't deprive your spouse. And so Paul is adamant here. Um, a marriage without sex is not only unnatural, it's also forbidden. And let me qualify that, okay? That's, of course, barring any complications. There's obviously times where you can't be physically intimate. There's physical ailments. There's medical problems. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, But I hope you hear beyond Paul's voice, obviously, all of Scripture, um, it's God speaking through, through people. And so I hope we see God's voice in this passage and do we hear what he's saying to our marriages. Uh, God loves us and cares for us in even the most intimate, specific areas of our lives. And he's, he's kind of asking, can, can we talk about your sex life with your spouse? Let's chat about whether it's all I've designed it to be. 
because I want you to experience delight in one another. So sex is very important to a healthy marriage. It, it acts kind of like rebar. You think of in concrete. You need to have rebar in concrete. It strengthens it. Um, and we'll talk more next week about kind of a more fully or biblical understanding of, of kind of the design of sex. But, um, you know, part of it is, is it's a way to strengthen the relationship. Even today, they've, they've now seen how much oxytocin is released when, when a couple is um, intimate with each other. And that's, a, that's the bonding chemical. Um, it, it really draws them together in connection. Um, you know, barring any physical limitations, if, if, a, if a couple is not having any, you know, sort of form of frequency in the relationship, it can be, I've, I've heard some talk about how it's kind of like a check engine light. Like if, if you're not, um, you know, coming together much anymore, um, again, barring any physical limitations, it can be like a check engine light. That it, It's a sign that maybe there's this, there's a deeper problem in the, the marriage um, and deeper loss of connection. And thus, because of all that, it keeps us from temptation. It keeps us from looking to other places to find those things. And that's part of what uh, this passage is trying to teach. And, and remember that that idea of um, you know, God giving couples to each other for many reasons, not only to, not least of which is to um, keep them from temptation um, to ex- you know, indulge in sexuality in other ways, Proverbs 5 actually goes into that more deeply. Um, if, I, you know, if I had pulled up Proverbs 5, you'd see a, a lot of ways in Proverbs 5 on how you know, the, the wisdom to um, this person in Proverbs 5 is to you know, rejoice in the, the wife of your youth and to drink from your own cistern and to not go to other places. And part of it is so that you're not tempted in other ways. So procreation is clearly not the only uh, reason for sex in the Bible. That's a whole other discussion, um, and we'll get into that a little bit next time. Um, but we see here that it's not the only reason. Um, and you could see that this, uh, you know, this passage could be seen as Paul saying that marriage is second class to singleness because um, he goes on to just praise singleness the rest of chapter 7, which again was pretty countercultural for that day. But that's not the case. He's He's affirming sexuality and marriage as God-given and a creational gift as well as other places he lifts up marriage. He's just dealing with a specific issue in Corinth, and so it only looks like he's kind of having that view of marriage. Um, But you have to put it in light of what he says in other places. All right, so I want to talk a little bit more just about this idea of frequency. I think that's probably the common struggle that couples will have. Um, that will lead to tension and, and conflict in their marriage about sex. Um, in a survey of over 1,000 couples, 61% reported that differences in sexual desire, that's also been called a drive discrepancy, was the number one problem spot in marital um, sexual life. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's no black and white number on what, you know, frequency should be for a couple. For some couples, you know, it can look one way. For others, it can look a different way. It can be more frequent or not. Um, but I think, especially here in, in 1 Corinthians 7, we can see that there is, there can be a normal for a couple that is too low. And again, I don't want to get into numbers and all that. That's just not helpful, I don't think. Um, it can be. But, um, um, and so, frequency. The first, so one of the, um, things and encouragements I want to give from this passage um, 
is that the first instinct for, for those who are married here, your first in- instinct when you read verse 5 shouldn't be to think of your spouse and how they might be depriving you. That shouldn't be your first instinct. It's not that you can't ever think about that. But your first instinct should be to think about yourself and how you might be depriving your spouse if this is ever an issue in your marriage. You know, for a spouse that has, um, you know, maybe a higher drive, if you want to call it, or one that maybe is, has more interest in being intimate than the other, um, usually it's men. It's not always men. I mean, there's this uh, picture you've maybe seen. Uh, shoot, did I, get, did I lose it? There it is. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a silly, um, it's, it's kind of a stereotype, but there's, there is some truth to that, where for men it can just be kind of very easy to get interested, and, and for women it's, it's a lot different. Um, so, um, yeah, for the spouse with a higher kind of interest, you know, what are ways that that spouse can deprive their, their spouse? Um, so, I think, you know, again, for some, it's just you so quickly think of your spouse, especially for ones who, who are, have a higher sex drive. Um, but what is part of what leads to the arousal and interest, especially for a woman? Um, maybe you're depriving her by not pursuing your wife. Um, maybe asking yourself, are, am I making my spouse feel cherished? Am I making them feel prioritized? Maybe that's a way that you're depriving them. Um, and do you have an understanding of reasons that he or she may not be um, in the mood to be intimate as much? And, and some of these are, someone to list some reasons that, that, you know, a spouse may not be as interested. And these can be true mostly for men or women. You know, having a low emotional connection to the spouse can sort of kill desire. Having past abuse um, in, in your, your life can affect, affect things. Having a physical or medical condition or even illness or an underlying hormonal imbalance or changes. Um, and, you know, uh, another one is infidelity, of course. <laughs> if, if there's infidelity in, in some way in the relationship, that's obviously going to affect the other spouse. Um, having lack of physical energy due to fatigue or exhaustion, you know, that, that can be situational, especially um, in a season of having young kids. It can be a time where one spouse is especially more exhausted or medical reasons. Uh, there can be side effects of medication that can kill uh, libido. Uh, depression and anxiety, that can obviously affect it. And then pornography use, of course, can, uh, can affect you know, if one spouse has had struggles with pornography, it's going to affect in some way the other spouse in a negative way. And so, um, you know, that's just, I think that's part of, part of not depriving your spouse um, is, is having an understanding, is, is kind of meeting them where they're at, um, not just demanding something, but having a sense, okay, what, what is maybe um, killing their interest? And so pursuing them and, and understanding them. I've heard someone say you need to, to touch her heart before you touch her body. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, a good um, call for, for spouses to, um, you know, let the physical expression be a picture of this deeper emotional, spiritual connection between you. I think another thing to say, and I'll get a little bit more specific in a minute, but um, is don't be passive but proactive 
especially I'm still speaking to the, the spouse with sort of the, 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 the higher interest in um, being intimate. Don't just be passive and just wait around until they're ready. Like there's a sense in which you can be proactive um, and, and try to pursue and initiate, which can be very hard because if you get turned down, it, it can feel like a slap in the face. It can feel kind of cut at the core of, of who you are. Um, and so learning how to still put yourself out there and initiate and not just kind of sit back and um, just wait until they're ready. Um, so that's just a couple initial thoughts for how not to deprive the other for the spouse that has sort of the higher interest. And if, there, if there's a spouse that has sort of a lower interest, what does it mean for you to not deprive? If you've not been in the mood and it's not physically or chemically related, um, maybe for you not depriving them means or looks like sharing some frustrations you've been having with your spouse that have been keeping you from feeling connected. Um, Sometimes it can mean being willing to give uh, this to your spouse even when you aren't feeling it. And I'll speak a little bit more to that in a minute. All right, so, so kind of now putting that all into sort of summarizing some of what I just said and, and adding a little bit more. I think in, if there's ever struggles in a marriage over frequency, I think one place to start is just prayerful introspection, um, just kind of looking in your own life. You know, for the spouse with the higher interest, you know, maybe even asking, okay, if I'm in this moment where I'm really um, wanting to be intimate with my spouse, where is that arousal coming from? Where, where is that interest coming from? Is it a, from a desire to connect with your spouse? Or is it, was it maybe provoked by, you know, maybe a song or a movie or a, an image that you saw? And so it's just, I need to, to have this release. And obviously this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, is saying that marital sex is a way to help you with that. Um, but it's also, at the same time, not saying that every time you feel aroused that you need to get, that you deserve to have sex. Um, it's deeper than that. You know, we need to remember that, you know, Jesus promises us later in 1 Corinthians that he will give us a way out of temptation, um, especially for maybe a spouse who's, you know, having sexual desires and maybe some of them coming on from, for unhealthy reasons, Jesus can help you with that. And maybe sometimes the way he's going to help you with that is, by, is through your spouse, by you know, providing an opportunity for you and your spouse to, to be intimate. But sometimes that's not going to happen and it's not um, going to lead to you and your spouse being able to be intimate. And you know, Jesus can still provide a way to, to remove that temptation and to, to help you through it. Um, you know, we, it, it said it in that PCA position paper that we read several weeks back when it was talking about marriage and, and God's design for marriage. In one of the nevertheless sections, the second section, it says, nevertheless, not all marital sex is sinless. Uh, there are ways that um, even sex within marriage can have sin involved. Um, you know, I heard one person say, we're so used to saying that all sex outside of marriage is bad that we just assume any kind of sex in marriage is good. But there are ways that we can sin against our spouse in this area. I had a professor who taught on sex in, in seminary. He, he, one of the things he encouraged us to think about as we're maybe approaching a moment of being intimate with our spouse is, am I doing something with my body right now that I've been doing with my life lately? 
Um, am I showing something with my body that I've been showing with my life? Um, as, you know, part of what sex is to be is, is sort of the picture of the leaving and cleaving. Not, you know, cleaving to your spouse and then the, the one flesh is a picture of that. Um, you know, for still thinking about peripheral introspection, for the one who has lower interest, you know, is there anything I can do to make more space for my spouse in my life is maybe one thing you can prayerfully think through. And then, of course, as you're, you know, working through this moment of maybe frustration over frequency, just, again, understanding your spouse. What, what might be contributing either to them having um, an extra amount of interest or them having a lack of interest, um, having a, a loving int- uh, understanding? And then it's important to communicate, to, to learn how to talk about these things together as a couple. Uh, couples need to learn how to talk about sex together. Uh, it can be awkward. It can be hard. Um, if there's been wounds in the relationship, it can be even harder. But if you're struggling, you need to talk about it. Um, we're called in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens, and that's, of course, the whole church is called to that, but even especially in, in marriages. We need to bear each other's burdens. We need to be talking about things we're struggling with. And being able to talk about it well can actually have the effect of enhancing your intimacy together. And part of communicating and talking about it includes um, having encouragement. It can be so quick to just think about the negative and maybe ways we're feeling deprived by our spouse. We need to start with the positive, ways that we um, have been encouraged and ways that they've um, loved us well um, or ways we've enjoyed them. Um, so listen to understand, speak to be understood in these conversations. You know, Maybe share what it's like for you to be turned down. Um, or on the opposite end, share what it's like Share what puts you out of the mood, what, what maybe from your spouse kind of makes you lose interest. Being able to talk about these things is important. Um, don't pressure, especially for the one with more interest. You know, no matter the situation, I don't think the framework, especially of Ephesians 5, this idea of each for the other, I don't think it allows for one spouse to force the other into sex. Uh, you know, John Piper talked about that a lot in, uh, earlier when I read his piece. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean you can't still try to, to talk to them and, and maybe bi- try to build interest between you um, in those spaces. So don't pressure, don't withhold, um, for the, you know, especially for the one with, with less interest. Um, pray that you might be a servant to your spouse. Remember that your spouse does not have another sexual outlet. Uh, you are who God intends to satisfy the sexual needs of your spouse. Um, Again, I've, I've qualified that statement, hopefully, in many ways. That, that doesn't mean um, that you always have to give in, but I think it could be good. And I think 1 Corinthians 7 calls the one, especially with less interest, to at least prayerfully think through how God could give them, um, uh, help them give this to their spouse and serve their spouse. And also maybe discern um, whether you're withholding for sinful reasons. You know, this can come up in marriages where you kind of withhold sex as a way to get at them in some way uh, or punish them. Um, and so kind of think through those things as well. And then uh, five is share. You know, if needed, talk to a trusted friend or, or talk to maybe a pastor or to um, a, a professional counselor if, if issues in this area persist. Um, and, and, and seek on how to work through these things. And if, it's, if there's you know, maybe physical things that are um, 
are in inhibition here. Maybe there's, there's physical therapists who can help with, with certain things or doctors. There can be medical reasons for causing this that um, you can also get kind of more professional help in that way. So that's, those were my thoughts on, on this. be curious if there were any comments or questions, having kind of laid all that out. Any reactions or thoughts? Yeah, Al. I think the you sharing that. Yeah, I think this is probably true for more couples than we realize. Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Steve. All right, well, uh, we do need to run. Uh, I'd be happy to talk with anyone else who may have further thoughts or questions um, afterwards or even later this week if you want to reach out. Father, uh, a beautiful but also can be heavy topic, as I know some here um, have experienced um, you know, a, a, a level of brokenness in this area that is discouraging and, and disheartening. And, but uh, we also thank you for ways that you've given much life, um, and, and we thank you for the gift of, of marital intimacy, Lord, um, and, and your encouragement for us to delight in our spouse. Um, so would you build the marriages at Redeemer? Um, for those not married uh, and longing to be married, would you equip them with, with just a really healthy uh, and, and biblical uh, understanding of of marriage and of sex, and uh, I pray that you would encourage all of our hearts this morning uh, with your goodness and your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.